The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today comes from Galatians 6, 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon Israel, upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our third uh, consecutive Sunday live stream. Just want to remind us all before I get into the sermon of a few things to be mindful of. And uh, all you need to do is go to the homepage uh, of ChristPres.org and click the button where it says Worship, Connect, Serve. Uh, Right there, it's a very short statement of the various ways that you can stay engaged Uh, during this time. Uh, The worship piece is simple. Uh, Keep showing up uh, at 10 a.m. on Sunday for this live stream uh, until uh, we are back together in gathered worship. We're not really sure exactly when that's going to be, hopefully sooner rather than later. But until that time, 10 a.m. every Sunday, we will be right here. And then the services remain online after that in recorded form. If if you can't get to it at 10 a.m. or if you'd like to share the service with somebody uh, through your social media or otherwise. So that's the worship component. Uh, And then the connect component Uh, We are uh, asking people to connect digitally, uh, to take pictures of yourselves doing what you're doing right now as you're worshiping with us. Take pictures of what's going on in your home uh, and uh, put the hashtag on there, CPCOnline, hashtag CPCOnline, so that other people can uh, uh, insert that hashtag and, and see what you're up to and connect with you visually. Uh, another way to connect is to, uh, to do what several connect groups and also some Sunday morning learning communities are now doing, uh, is to connect online through Google Groups or, or Zoom, which are, which are wonderful apps that enable you on your computer or through your device to connect face-to-face digitally with, with the people who are in your connect group. And if you don't have a connect group, again, you can go to that Worship Connect Serve page, and uh, there's instruction on how you can connect with others at Christ Pres during this time, even if you don't have a connect group. And then the serve piece, we want to encourage you to keep checking on your neighbors, uh, keep, keep staying as generous as you can toward 
toward our neighbors, toward things like disaster relief efforts from the tornadoes, which, which there's still a, a pressing need, uh, give to the food banks, and of course give to your church, as uh, Stacy mentioned a few moments ago, uh, because the ministries go on, we're continuing to support all of our partners, uh, and uh, so those are some ways that you can stay connected even uh, during this time. And, uh, and so now what I'd like to do is turn our attention to the very last uh, passage uh, in our Galatians series here in Galatians chapter 6. And the title of today's sermon is Boast in Christ. And this is, this is actually the perfect kind of text for us to explore uh, the Sunday before uh, Palm Sunday, which is next Sunday, and then Good Friday, which is the Friday after that, and then Easter Sunday, and all indications are that we're going to be continuing to do even those, uh, those central uh, dates in the Christian calendar uh, in this live stream uh, fashion. But this, this passage, this last sermon uh, and scripture text from Galatians is a wonderful prelude uh, to Holy Week, which is coming up uh, a week from now. I'll start this way, uh, an anecdote from my childhood. Uh, we were living in Atlanta, Georgia, and my grandparents were visiting us from North Carolina. And my, my grandfather, uh, his name was Fred, Grandpa Fred we called him, and uh, he always had a chihuahua. A chihuahua is this little four-pound dog. Uh, for many years there was Henry and then Henry died and then after Henry was teeny and he, he would always bring the dog when they came to visit us and she was an ornery little dog. Uh, but one of the things that we, that we said to each other when they were with us on this visit is we have to make sure that teeny does not uh, go outside by herself because next door uh, there were these two German shepherds that were always outside in their yard and we were afraid that if she went outside those two German shepherds would eat her. Uh, those two German shepherds, uh, each of them weighs 40 pounds, that's 10 times what she weighed, and uh, multiply that by two, they both together are 20 times her weight. And uh, lo and behold, on the second day of their visit, uh, Teeny couldn't be found. We didn't know where she was, and so we started looking, we started panicking. Grandpa Fred was, was beside himself, and then, and then uh, I went outside and I was, think, I was thinking, please don't let Teeny you know, you know, be eaten by the German shepherds next door. And I walk outside and I hear the squeal of a dog and the bark of a dog, and uh, the, one of the funniest sights I'd ever seen in my life. These two German shepherds are sprinting, running for their life as this chihuahua is chasing after them. Uh, and this was a bit of a humorous picture of what's not so humorous right now. Currently, seven and a half billion human beings are running for our lives from an organism that is billions of times smaller than we are. And it's a true threat. A chihuahua is not a true threat to a German shepherd. But a deadly virus is a true threat to many in the human race. It reminds me of one of my favorite go-to songs from uh, the singer-songwriter Rich Mullins. And the lyrics go like this. We are frail. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Forged in the fires of human passion, choking on the fumes of selfish rage. And with these, our hells and our heavens, so few inches apart, we must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. Awfully small, not as strong as we think we are. Running scared from a virus that is billion, uh, billions of times smaller than we are and yet is taking lives. It's during times of stress, it's under pressure, that what's really on the inside of us gets exposed. Think about a balloon. Let's say you fill a balloon with perfume, if that were possible. And then you fill another balloon with, with the air that effervesces uh, above a pile of compost. If you pop, both balloons look the same until you pop them. And you pop the perfume balloon and it smells, it, it puts the sweet smell of perfume in the air. You pop the balloon uh, from the compost air and it puts the rotten smell of the compost in the air. It's under pressure, it's under stress. It's when we get needled by circumstances we can't control that what's really inside of us comes out of us. And what I want to do for starters is just be, get a little bit personal with you. And if there's a message that I believe God is trying to drive home to me, it is, Scott, while you have this season of quarantine and social distancing and everything that it represents, don't waste the moment. Don't waste the moment, first of all, to uh, remember how thankful you ought to be and how thankful you are for the things that you've lost during this season. I got a very kind phone call from uh, Pastor Mike Glenn a couple of days ago. Mike is a senior pastor of Brentwood Baptist Church, which is right down the road from where we are. Uh, he was just checking in on me. He said, Scott, I was just thinking about you. I was wondering how you're doing. How are you doing? And we got to talking about how we are both on Sunday mornings, uh, in some ways, living our worst nightmare. The worst nightmare of a pastor is to show up to an empty sanctuary and then preach to that empty sanctuary. I'm preaching to a, a room with, with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people who are serving this live stream right now. So it's not entirely empty, but it's emptier than usual. This is the worst nightmare of a pastor Realize, And we got to talking about that. And then I started uh, thinking about how thankful I am. And then the, the phrase absence makes the heart grow fonder uh, came to mind. Uh, the absence of our people uh, is creating an ache in my heart. I miss you. I love you. I want to be with you. Uh, this is such a gift to be able to do this in ways that we couldn't do this uh, through the airwaves 25 years ago. And yet, it's not enough. I need to be with my people. I miss you. I'm thankful for you. I can't wait uh, until we're together again. So don't waste the moment to remember what you're thankful for, the things that have been taken away or the people that have been taken away temporarily. But I'm also reminded, and this is something I don't want to waste either, of how sinful I am. You know, Samantha prayed a moment ago uh, in the prayers of the people, we are worried about provision. That's me. Worried. I'm worried about the future. I'm worried especially about how 
provision is going to happen for people who depend on the flourishing of Christ Presbyterian Church. I think of all the ministry partners that depend on us for support. I think of our staff and their families who depend on Christ Pres' flourishing for their support. I think of my own family and, and what's coming to me whenever I experience worry during this season is this voice that I can't hear but I can feel it in my heart. Scott, you are not the Christ. You are not the Christ. You need a savior, but you are no one's savior. This is my sin during this season, the sin of worry. Worry is just thinking that God is not going to get this right. And so I need to, to, to recapture control, or really the illusion of control, because we're never in control. But that's where my struggle is. Peter, the apostle, had similar moments. He was an anxious disciple. You know, Jesus wants to wash his feet. And he says, you will never wash my feet, Lord. And Jesus says, if I can't wash your feet, if I can't wash you, then you have no part with me. But Peter couldn't fathom how the living God would stoop to such a humble place to wash the feet of a sinful man like Peter. When Jesus announces that he's going to the cross, that he's going to his death, Peter says, no way it will that happen. You're the Christ. You're the king of the universe. You are the champion of the world. There's no way that, that little men are going to take your life. And, and Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. You're a stumbling block to me. See, there's certain ways that God decides to act in the world in order to accomplish his purposes. And we just can't fathom why. And so we panic. We even get critical of God. And we worry. Because we don't think that God is getting it right. In comes the Apostle Paul at the end of Galatians in verse 11. And he says, see what large letters I'm writing to you in my own hand. All caps, imagine that. All caps at the end of the letter. And Paul, so graciously, so kindly, is saying to us, there is only one thing in the universe that can bear the weight of the world, that can bear the weight of your sorrows, that can bear the weight of your worries, and it is not you. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus is the only thing in the universe that can bear the weight of, you, of the world of your worries and of, of your sorrows. And then, then he drives it home with two main overarching points. One is we need the cross of Christ. And the second is the cross of Christ bears the weight. So first, we need the cross of Christ. This is just another way of saying we can't fix ourselves. The way Paul put it is circumcision, uncircumcision, whatever you decide to do with, with this command that the false teachers of Galatia are telling you you must obey in order to be okay, in order to fix yourself, in order to be, belong to God and be accepted by God, in order to belong to the community, in order to be able to look in the mirror and accept yourself. You have to be circumcised. Paul says, hey, circumcision, not getting circumcised, it means nothing. It will gain you nothing. He goes on to talk about how the false teachers are boasting in the flesh of the people who are obeying this 
circumcision command. That it's not only Jesus you need, you also need to behave in this way in order to be right with God. And they're succeeding with many of the people in the church of Galatia at, 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 at influencing people to bear this mark of circumcision. And Paul says, you know, they're persuading you to accept circumcision as your basis for belonging. But what he, what he says is, they're using you. They're not trying to serve you. They're not loving you. They're not trying to benefit you. They're using you. You, when you get circumcised, you just become another notch in their belt. Verse 12, they're, they're doing this in order to make a good showing in the flesh. So here's the translation. The false teachers are boasting because people are following their false teaching. They're gaining a crowd. They're gaining likes and follows and fans. They're gaining applause. They're gaining affirmation. This is what their boast is. That your boast, as Paul uses the word, is it's an identity thing. It's what you're basing your sense of worth on. And the false teachers are saying, if we can get all these people to follow our instruction, look at us. We're large and in charge. We're influencers. You know, everyone is trying to fix themselves in some way, shape, or form. And the false teachers are trying to fix a hole in their own heart. This feeling of insignificance that they believe will be fixed if they can gain followers. Their drug of choice is affirmation from other people. If they have the affirmation, they are okay and feel okay about themselves. Now for others, the drug of choice could be another good thing. There's nothing wrong with affirmation. Affirmation is a good thing. But when we take a good thing and turn it into our boast, when we turn it into our ultimate thing, that's when it becomes a destructive thing. For some, it's affirmation. For others, it's comfort. For others, it's financial stability. For others, it's good health. For others, it's, it's our family being safe. For others, it's the illusion of being in control. If we have it, we feel okay. If we lose it, we either panic or we rage. We panic or we rage. Now, there's a legitimate form of anger. I am angry at the coronavirus. I am angry at what this whole pandemic is doing to the world, to human lives, to society, to our ability to connect. I'm angry. There's a legitimate form of anger in the scriptures. You know, the Bible says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. But anger can turn into rage when we start pointing fingers, when we start to rage at either ourselves because of what we bring upon ourselves, at other people because we think they're the enemy, or at God himself because we don't think God is getting it right. If you lose the thing that is your boast, you rage. You know, the Pharisees, when after Jesus rose his friend Lazarus from the dead after, being four, after the man was four days dead. What did the Pharisees want to do? They plotted, it said, to kill Lazarus. I mean, how crazy is that? That, that, that? that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, raises this man from the dead and they want to fix it by putting Lazarus to death again. And why do they want to do that? Because they had been the influencers. They had been the one who'd gotten all the affirmation and the accolades in the religious community. And along comes Jesus, this untrained rabbi, unschooled rabbi, 
man of no reputation, from a poor home, grew up in a hick town, a small, obscure hick town, and all of a sudden, the people who used to follow us are now following him. We've got to deal with this or else we're going to lose our place in our nation, they say. They're going to lose the affirmation because the affirmation was their boast. Being the, the key influencers, that was their boast. You'll even kill somebody if you have to, to hold on to your boast if you're a Pharisee. Another picture is Job and his wife. For many years they'd enjoyed a, a thriving home, ten children, which suggests a happy marriage, having ten children. Financially prosperous, in good health, pillars of their community, faithful, uh, you know, religious people. You know, the Bible says that Job was the most righteous person on earth at this time. And then a major crisis hits through a terrorist attack. They lose all their children. They lose their business. They lose their prosperity. Uh, Job loses his health in the process. And then the balloons pop. One balloon was filled with perfume. One was filled with the air of compost. For Job, the Lord was his boast. And so Job's response, even to tragedy, was naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's wife's response was the opposite. Curse God and die. You've got two people going through the same crisis. Two very different, uh, two very different uh, uh, insides revealed through the pressure when the balloon is popped. For Job, God was his boast. That just means that God was his emotional center. God was his emotional center. Circumstances were his emotional accessory. But for Job's wife, the circumstances were her emotional center and God was her emotional accessory. You know that God is your emotional accessory as opposed to your emotional center when something you have is taken away and then you remember God is in control of all things. He's not getting this right. And then we rage at God because our boast has been taken away. What we need is so much more than circumcision. What, what, what we need, this is Paul's point here, what we need is so much more than a small cut on a covered up place. What we need is to be covered with a bloodbath. We need to be bathed in the blood of Christ. Which is why Paul says, the, the cross is the only thing I've got to bear the weight of your world, of your worries, and of your sorrows. Far be it from me, he says, to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The translation here is that Paul is saying he has lost it all because of the cross, and yet the cross is enough. He would rather have the cross than everything that he lost. He lost career, status, community, he lost his health through his thorn in the flesh. He lost his safety as a persecuted man because of his love, loyalty, and allegiance to Jesus Christ. The same people who wanted to put Lazarus to death wanted to put Paul to death because he was amplifying the name of Christ. 
instead of being a persecutor of Christ, which he had been before he got converted to Christ. You know, verse 17, he says this. This is, this is Paul's version of don't mess with me, people. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. You know, John Stott said that persecution is a token of genuineness and a certificate of Christian authenticity. Why is Paul persecuted? Why is anybody persecuted for the cross of Christ and the message of the cross? Because it's offensive. It tells us something about ourselves. It's an indictment on us. That's why it's offensive. You know, Roger Ebert, when when the Passion of the Christ was filmed and, and, and you know, he was doing his review of, of the Passion of the Christ, his assessment was, and I quote, this is the most violent film I've ever seen. The violence is offensive in the Passion of the Christ in ways that the violence in Braveheart is not offensive to us. Why is that so? Because the subtweet... The elephant in the room is this. If this is what God had to do to his only begotten perfect son in order to save us, and if that God is perfectly just, then that means the punishment perfectly fits the crime. What Jesus had to bear on the cross perfectly fits the burden that our sin became to God and the offense that our sin, including my worry, became to God Almighty. We need a creator on the cross. No small cut is going to do it. You know, Mel Gibson, who produced The Passion of the Christ, made one single appearance in the film. His hand was the hand that was shown to, to drive the nails into Jesus, to, 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 to nail him to the, to the cross. And the film's website says this, that this is symbolic of the fact that Mel Gibson holds himself accountable, first and foremost, for Christ's death. John Eldridge writes that some call the gospel a Cinderella story, and that's partially true, except we weren't the helpless, innocent maiden. We were the wicked stepsisters. Here's the irony of the cross, as offensive as that sounds, here's the irony of the cross, the more honest we are about how bad it is, about the compost air that, we, that we've breathed into the world. Like Job's wife, cursing God, cursing our neighbor, cursing ourselves. The more free we are to own that, the more free we are as human beings. You know, Job, part of the picture of Job is you know, he says to the Lord, I repent in dust and ashes. I'm always better off than I deserve, is another way of saying that. Isaiah, who had the cleanest lips in all of Israel, when he, when he gets a glimpse of, of the Lord and the holiness of God, says, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter gets a vision, all, all, he's just hearing Jesus teach by the water. And just the teaching of Christ alone compels Peter to say to Jesus, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. 
The Apostle Paul, at the height of his virtue, at the end of his life, this is Paul in his most sanctified, beautified state before he died. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Oh, but it sounds so morbid. It's bad for self-esteem. Can I get honest? If all we're after is self-esteem, we're after something so much smaller than what God has for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. You are the crown of creation, the eighth Psalm says. You are the image of God, Genesis chapter 2 says. You were created to be glorious and perfect. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're going to become like him. Because you're going, to be, you're going to see him as he is after, after the resurrection. We need the cross. It's offensive, but we need it. Because, secondly, the cross bears the weight. You know, we sang these lyrics a few moments ago from the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ his death, and resurrection. You know, the cross brings us low and it forces us to get honest with how corrupt we are on the inside. What, what Jesus had to bear and endure on the outside is a picture of the corruption that we bring to the picture from the inside. The cross brings us low when we deal with it honestly. But it also gives us an esteem that is infinitely more, infinitely greater than self-esteem. If we want self-esteem, we, 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 just, we just want to be a chihuahua. But if we want the esteem that the cross offers, we're, we're a whole colony of German shepherds. We are grand and glorious based on what the cross tells us. That's the other side of it. The affirmation of the cross for those who receive it is even greater than the offense of it. If you've ever been to an auction, you know how much every item is worth. Every item is worth exactly what the highest bidder pays for it. Look at what God paid in order to secure you as his child with no grudge, with no resentment, with no sense of have to. It says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. That joy that, was, that he was looking forward to was, was the joy of having you of rescuing you back to himself and bringing you into the fellowship of the Trinity, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are not merely forgiven, even though you are forgiven. You are not merely forgiven. You're delighted in. That's the whole message of Galatians. Galatians tells us you're, you're a child of God, no longer a slave to fear, a child of God and an heir of everything that belongs to Christ. The meek are going to inherit the whole earth. You know, some see the cross as bad taste. And the message of the cross as a message given in bad taste. How dare you say that we are sinners. But to others, especially those who are hyper aware of their sin, and I think this is why the prostitutes and tax collectors and crooks rushed to the cross while the scribes and Pharisees tried to put the cross in the rearview mirror. 
because they knew they needed it. To some, the cross is a message given in bad taste. To others, it is sweet relief. Because what the cross says is that you are known, you're busted, and you're completely loved. You're exposed, and you've been covered and tended to and cared for by the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Now, this past Friday, I received in the mail a letter from a friend in New Orleans. It was a two-page letter, and it, usually when I get a two-page letter and I haven't read it yet, I'm, I'm thinking, oh no, the hammer is about to drop. I'm found out. It's going to be disgusted with me. I'm not sure why, but it's that shame we all feel, right? All he said in the letter is, I've got 10 things I want to tell you that I love about you. And he took two pages to do that. Now, he could have included a thousand legitimate criticisms along with those 10 expressions of love, but he didn't include a single criticism. You know, sometimes when my wife, Patty, and I argue, and she sees me at my very worst, you know what people say to her, you know, it must be so wonderful to, to be married to a pastor. You know, we, we at home, <laughs> in the privacy of our home, we just laugh at that. Because she sees me at my worst. She knows that the shepherds, she knows better than anybody that the shepherd is also a sheep. But when we have conflict, when I do something offensive or say something offensive to her, it always leads, 25 years of this, it's always led to a hug and to an I love you and I embrace you. That's a picture of the gospel. You know, to, to, to love somebody biblically is to see the caterpillar in front of you, but to envision the butterfly. It's to see the compost in front of you, but to envision the garden and all the flowers and nourishment that's going to come from it. Here's the other thing about what the cross tells us. What feels defeating to us now might actually become our rescue. You know, Isaiah 53 is, is Isaiah the prophet's foretelling of the cross of Christ. And, and, and Isaiah says that Jesus will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. He'll be despised and rejected. The punishment that will bring us peace with God will be laid upon him. In other words, he will get, he will get everything laid upon him, dumped upon him and on his shoulders that our sins deserve so that we can get everything in exchange that his righteousness and goodness and beauty and truth and holiness deserve. And we're like, how, how on earth? You know, what everybody envisioned during Isaiah's time was a political military savior to, to defeat and crush the enemies. And here in comes Isaiah saying the way that God's going to save the world, the, the way that the creator is going to restore the creation back to him, himself, is by becoming weak and small Bleeding out on the cross at the hands of evil people. There's no way God can be getting this right. And then Isaiah, just two chapters later, says, you know, he speaks for the Lord. Who says, your thoughts are not my thoughts. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. You know, the church that I was once part of in New York City, um, sort of a legendary story about that church, Redeemer Presbyterian, 
the Sunday before 9-11 happened, uh, Redeemer had about 2,000 people uh, on a weekly basis in their worship service. The Sunday after 9-11, it was 5,000, and it stayed there. And that's not as, as so much a statement about church numbers as it is a statement about renewal and revival that can come out of a time of crisis and disorientation and pandemonium and pandemics. You know, my conversation with Mike Glenn from Brentwood Baptist, you know, we're, we're both sort of bemoaning our worst fear being realized, the empty sanctuary. But here's the truth of the matter. The last two weeks through live stream, we have a higher attendance than we've ever had in the history of our church, probably by a factor of three. That includes our highest ever Easter Sunday. God's doing something. We're not sure what, but I can't wait to find out when we get back together again. And I do discover little bits as I receive the emails and such. Let's not just pray prayers for survival. Let's, let's pray prayers for a revival. A revival. That those who don't know the Lord will know the Lord through crisis. And renewal. That those who've been nominal, bored in your faith, uncommitted, God is an accessory and not your center, Oh, let's reverse that hierarchy of our loves. And let's come back with a force. Giving ourselves wholly to Christ who gave himself wholly for us. You know, Hebrews says that, that God will sometimes shake things. In order that that which cannot be shaken would remain. And of course, the cross of Christ and all of its benefits are that what which cannot be shaken. Again, it's the only thing, the cross of Jesus, that can bear the weight of the world, of your worries, and of your sorrows. The finished work of Christ. You want stability in an unstable time? There it is. Make Christ your center. Make the cross of Christ your center and your circumstances an accessory. That way you can get mad at your circumstances without raging at them which will then lead you to rage at either yourself for investing poorly, rage at other people because you feel like a victim of the universe, or rage at God. See, but when your circumstances are your accessory and God is your center rather than the other way around, you can get appropriately angry and sin not, like it says in the Psalms and Ephesians. And you can be productive. What cannot be shaken is this. Romans 7 that leads to Romans 8. I want to encourage you to take this week and immerse yourself in Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 7, we see this most devastating self-assessment from the Apostle Paul. He's wrestling with, with, with what he knows about his own insides. That he is a man who covets. He's not, contentment does not come easily to him. Envy does. And he says, the good I want to do, I don't do, and the, the bad I don't want to do, I do. Wretched man. That's the word he uses about himself. Wretched man that I am. Compost, not perfume. Wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we get Romans 8 right after it, where he says, therefore, which connects it to Romans 7, on the basis of the wretchedness, there is now no condemnation 
For those like me, the Apostle Paul, who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. So there's no condemnation. And then there's no separation. Nothing in all creation. Not a pandemic. Not anything. Not even Job's tragic circumstances. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. We can't be separated from the love of the Father because Jesus was. On the cross, he cries, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus loses the popularity. Jesus is persecuted. He loses the friends, fans, and followers and likes. He loses it all. For the joy set before him to bear the weight of the world on his shoulders, on the cross, for sufferers, for God-cursers, for coveters, for people with unclean lips, for wicked stepsisters, and for worry warts. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you so love the world that you gave your only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I pray, Lord, that in this time of empty sanctuaries all over the world, that that message and that reality and that cross that alone can bear the weight of the world and of our worries and of our sorrows would bring about renewal among your people who have become nominal and ho-hum in their faith. Spark renewal, re-energize, cause us to fall in love with you again and sustain it for the rest of our days. And also, Father, for revival during this time. I can't wait to see what happens when the church doors open here, throughout our city, and all over the world. Do what only you can do in a set of circumstances that tempts us to think God can't be getting this right. Show us, Lord, in the same way that you've shown us with the cross, that you are getting this right. And your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts higher than ours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.